Well, this morning we are going to be in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11, so please go ahead and turn in your Bible there. The book of Isaiah is typically broken up into three different sections, chapters 1 through 39, chapters 40 through 55, and chapters 56 through 66. And so our passage this morning is right at the beginning of that second section of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was likely in his upper 50s uh, as he wrote this second part of his book. Isaiah's public preaching ministry appears to have largely ceased uh, during this time, and there seems to be two primary reasons for this. Uh, First, during this season of his life, he was dealing with the Assyrian crisis, which both Ken and Tyler have noted in their uh, previous two sermons. And secondly, the the king of Judah during this time was Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, who reigned for 55 years, and he was a wicked king. All of the accounts of what he did are described in 2 Kings chapter 21, but in summary, he led the people to worship false gods, to live in sinful rebellion, to reject God as king. And in light of Manasseh's intense opposition to God, this largely muzzled uh, uh, Isaiah's preaching, public preaching during that time, this call of repentance, this call of God's justice that is going to come, this was largely muzzled during this season. And so in God's providence, Isaiah's mission of pronouncing judgment on Israel was now to, uh, to pr- pronounce comfort Uh, to his people. And we see that in our passage this morning. And we see that throughout all of this second section of the book, uh, chapters 40 through 55, that Isaiah's mission is to to, uh, proclaim words of comfort to his people, that there is a coming servant to redeem his people. And that's what we see in our passages this, uh, this morning. I believe that at the time Isaiah wrote chapter 40, that Israel was not yet in Babylonian exile. This was before uh, they were in exile. Isaiah's ministry was, uh, began in uh, 740 B.C. We know that from Isaiah 6. And it lasted roughly 50 years. And the Babylonian exile didn't begin until 605 B.C. So I hold that Isaiah is the author of all 66 chapters of this book, and I believe that he is, this is a predictive prophecy of of what is to come for Israel. So um, Isaiah is is proclaiming words of comfort to his people that will, that they will uh, delight in these words whenever they uh, are in exile years later. Throughout the sermon, I'm I'm going to, to often speak as if the people are in Babylonian exile because this is the context for which Isaiah did write these very words. And so this will allow us to to better understand and feel the the weight and the significance of these verses. Uh, Plus, as we know, uh, we can look back and we can see that uh, God's word did come to fruition. What Isaiah proclaimed would happen did, in fact, happen. And so, so we can look back and see that as well. So let's go ahead and read Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. Please follow along with me in your copy of the Scriptures. This is God's Word. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. 
and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Church, would you please pray with me? Lord, we do thank you for your very breath, your word that we hold in our hands. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to come up under the authority of your an errant word this morning, that you would help us to receive these as your very words, and that you would comfort us where we need to be comforted, that you would encourage us, that you would also convict us where we need to be convicted as well. Lord, may we cling to the hope, the comfort that we see in these verses, that you are present with your people, you deliver your people, Your word is eternal and faithful. And may we be heralds of this glorious news as well. We pray this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've broken this passage up into three different sections. First of all, verses 1 through 5, where we see that we should receive comfort in God's presence and deliverance. We should receive God's comfort uh, in, in his presence and in his deliverance. Isaiah 39, in Isaiah 39, a group of dignitaries uh, come to, uh, to Judah from Babylon to see Hezekiah. And Hezekiah shows them all that he has. And, and look at verses 39 through uh, chapter 39, 5 through 7, where we see this response uh, from Isaiah. He says, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the place, in the palace of the king of Babylon. And so he's prophesying about the coming Babylonian exile that is to come. And then Hezekiah responds to Isaiah in verse 8. Of chapter 39, he says this, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. And so clearly, 
Hezekiah was confused as to what exactly Isaiah was proclaiming would happen. He thought that there would be peace and security and comfort during this time, and yet we know that that is not the case as we look to Scripture. We know that the Babylonians, they, were, uh, they, they, they didn't offer anything close to peace and security and comfort. Quite the opposite. Most of the Jews were sent from their homeland, cast out of their, their homes, and sent to Babylon away. And so that's anything but peace, security, and comfort. They had to leave all that they knew to go to Babylon for 70 years. And this is in light of their rebellion and disobedience to God, worshiping false gods, putting their trust in the nations. And so he casts them out of their homeland into exile, into Babylon. Think about this for a second. What if there was a foreign nation that invaded the United States of America, they took over, and they said, all right, y'all got to go to this foreign nation. You've got you've to go to Mexico. You've got to go to Africa. You've got to go to Asia. You're, you're cast out of your homeland. You've, you've got to leave your homes, your property, all your, all your belongings, leaving your family behind, leaving your church family, leaving your favorite restaurants and shops and coffee shops and all of those things. And not only that, you've, you've got to uh, probably learn a new language and certainly have to learn a new culture. So this is the situation that the Israelites were, were going to be in when they were in exile. This is a hope, seemingly hopeless predicament. So let's consider how the Israelites would have received these words of comfort given that situation of exile. Notice the personal language spoken here in verse 1. Let's look at verse 1 again. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. So who is the one providing comfort? Your God. Your God. And who is the one that is receiving this comfort? My people or God's people. So even though the Israelites had been living in sinful rebellion against God, he had not left them, he had not forsaken them. They were still his people, and he was still their God. Isn't this great news, church? That our God graciously remains faithful to his covenant promises to his people, even though we are constantly unfaithful to him? day after day? Isn't that super encouraging to know that our God will never leave us or forsake us? Look at verse 2. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So Israel's warfare or hardship has ended. That's what that term warfare means, this, this hardship, this trial that they've been going through. And so this, this trying season of being in exile for 70 years is now going to come to an end. And secondly, Israel's sins have been forgiven. God did punish them for their sin. In fact, 
Isaiah says that they have received from the Lord's hand double for their sins, right? So their punishment was pretty hefty. Being sent out of their homeland for 70 years is quite the punishment for their sin. And given the context of, of, these, uh, of Isaiah as well, I believe that this is likely a reference to the fact that uh, childlessness and widowhood was very prominent in Jerusalem during this time. And so they were experiencing the, uh, the punishment of God, from God that uh, their, their spouses were dying and they were not having uh, children. And so this was a, this was a part of this double uh, payment for their sin that they were uh, receiving because of their disobedience to the Lord. Although God's justice was executed on his people, we also see God pour out his grace to his people. One scholar I read helped, helped me uh, see that this, this term pardon in verse 2 is a technical term that is used in only a handful of places uh, in Leviticus. And, and this word in Leviticus is translated as acceptance or accepted. And that acceptance, of course, is grounded in the, the animal sacrifices, the, the blood that was shed by the animals that the Israelites were sacrificing. That was the grounding for which they would be accepted to God. If you fast forward 13 chapters in Isaiah to chapter 53, and you see verses 5 and 6 there, it says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so we go from the blood animal sacrifices in Leviticus, where that is the payment for their sins, to looking at Isaiah 53, where we see this suffering servant who is going to take on the iniquity of us all so that we could be pardoned and made right with God. And, and you see that, that as you uh, go to uh, Acts, which Pastor Ken just covered a few weeks ago in the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip, the Ethiopian eunuch is reading the scroll of Isaiah and he's reading those verses in Isaiah 53. And he's asking, who is this? Who's this referring to, Philip? And of course, Philip walks through the fact that this is Jesus, the Messiah. He is the suffering servant who came to take on our iniquity. He is the Savior that shed his blood, which is the grounding of our acceptance to the Father. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's perfect and holy standard. We have all gone astray, as Isaiah says, and God is just to punish us for our sins. He is just, he is holy, and therefore he must be just as well in his payment for our sins. Our sin debt must be paid for, must be paid for. And so, will you be the one to pay that debt? Or will you rest in the suffering servant's sacrifice on the cross to pay that debt for you? We will all stand before God one day, and it is either ourselves that will receive the just punishment for our sins, or we 
will pass that punishment on to Christ through faith and his perfect life, death, and resurrection. So friend, if, if that describes you where you are the one who is going to receive the punishment from God for your sins, then I urge you to consider this, this predicament that you were in. You will be paying for your sins somehow. Your sins are going to be paid for somehow. And it's either going to be you or it's going to be Jesus. And I, and I would urge you to respond to the hope of the gospel because it is only in Christ alone that we can, can have the hope of being forgiven. And so turn from your sin and trust in Christ. Repent of your sin. Trust in Jesus alone to rescue you. Verses 1 and 2 provides us with comforting words that God will deliver his people from, uh, from, from exile and, and he will forgive us of our sins. And then verses 3 through 5 describes us how he will redeem his people. Let's look at verses 3 through 5. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low, and the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Verse 3 begins with a voice cries. And we aren't exactly sure who this voice is, uh, whether it's an angel, a prophet, a, a group of prophets. The important thing that Isaiah is seeking to get across is the message itself. It's not uh, in the fact that God is the one who is ultimately behind the message. We do know that, but as, as far as his, his messenger, we don't know exactly who that is. And we see the same phrase in verse uh, 6 as well, and same thing there. We don't know exactly who the messenger is. However, we do know that God is the one who is ultimately behind that, and the key thing is the message itself. So what is the message of the voice? The Lord is coming to his people and nothing will get in his way. Nothing will stop him from coming to his people. God will make straight the highway in the desert. He will lift up the valleys. He will make low the mountains. He will level, level the uneven ground. He will make the rough places a plain. The visual here is that God will remove any and every obstacle that is between he and his people. We've all been in the car going down the road before, and we hear the sirens coming from a distance. And quickly, those sirens get louder and louder and louder, and they get right up next to us. And in that moment, people are stopping, they're pulling over to the side, they're getting out of the way so that the ambulance can get through. Even people that are at, uh, have a green light, they're stopping, right? They're stopping so that this ambulance can get through. All the obstacles in the way of this vehicle, this, this ambulance, is, is, are, being, uh, are being moved out of the way clearing the way out of the way. And in a similar way, God removes all obstacles between himself and his people so that he could come to rescue them from exile. 
And we know that uh, as we look to history and we look to the scriptures, that God redeemed the Israelites from Babylonian exile through, his, uh, through Cyrus of uh, Persia and his decree that, was, uh, that he decreed in 539 B.C. God was faithful to deliver his people despite their unfaithfulness to him. What glorious news that is. God delivered the Israelites from exile, but in what way has he delivered us? First, God sent John the Baptist as his messenger in the wilderness to prepare the way for the Lord. Matthew 3, 1 through 6. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, this is, and this is our verse from Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus. He prepared the, uh, the way for the coming kingdom of God. He, he, he was the one performing the baptism of repentance, calling Jerusalem, calling Judea to repent, to turn from their sins, turn from their wicked ways, and turn back to the Lord because the kingdom of God was at hand. The Lamb of God was, was now here to deliver his people and make sacrifice for his people. John the Baptist was, was the appetizer before the main course. He was the, the blooming onion before your Outback steak dinner. And so he, he, he was preparing the way. He was pointing forward to the coming main course. And what was that main course? Well, it was, it was Jesus, right? God's glory being revealed through the form of a man. God taking on flesh. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The incarnation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is what we celebrate during this Advent season. The greatest gift of all time throughout all of history came in the form of a baby in a manger. In spite of our rebellion, worshiping of idols, trusting in the things of this world, trusting in ourselves to rescue ourselves, rejecting God, the Father graciously gave us his Son. He sent him to be born of the virgin, to be laid in the manger. He gave his son to bear our iniquity. He came to be crushed for our sins. He is the suffering servant that Isaiah talks about in chapter 53, who would, to, who would come to bear our iniquities. It is through the shed blood of Jesus 
that we have access to the Father, that we can be accepted to the Father. So friend, perhaps you're here this morning and you're wondering, is there any hope in this world? Is there anything that can bring true and lasting comfort and peace? Is there any way that I can be accepted by God? Well, the good news is that it is a resounding yes. Yes, there is one true hope. All of your past, current, future sins can be washed away by the blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you would simply turn from your sin and respond in faith, put all of your faith and trust yourself to the Lord Jesus, then then you will have true hope and true peace. You can be made right with God through faith in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. This is what the Christmas season is about, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So, friend, turn to Jesus. Come to him for rest, for peace, for comfort, for joy. For it is in him alone that we can find those things. We, receive, we can receive comfort from God's presence and his deliverance. And we can also receive comfort from God's everlasting and faithful word. We can receive comfort from God's everlasting and faithful word. Let's look to verses 6 through 8. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So the main point of this illustration here is that mankind is temporal, but God and his word are eternal. Mankind is temporal, but God and his word are everlasting, eternal. The term flesh in these verses is a reference to mankind. And mankind is compared to the grass of the field and the flowers of the field. And just as grass shrivels up once the temperature gets too hot or too cold, so too does mankind pass from this earth. And just as the beauty of flower, flowers diminished, diminishes over time, so too does mankind. The term that is translated beauty in the ESV in that verse is actually the Hebrew word hesed, which is a reference, typically a reference to God's steadfast love or his covenant-keeping love. And so the, the theme that Isaiah appears to be hitting on here is that of constancy or uh, dependability, something that will last God's covenant love lasts forever. It's steadfast. That's why it's tra translated typically steadfast love. And so this is the idea is something of dependability or constancy. And the constancy or dependability of a flower, we know, is temporal, right? It may live for a very short time depending on how well it's taken care of. And it will live a, a very short time if Pastor Ken is the one that is taking care of the flowers. Uh, just ask the flowers outside of the church building. The, the, the point is, is that 
that humans are fleeting, right? We're fleeting just like the grass of the field or the, the flowers of the field. We don't live forever. We're not constant. We're not eternal. So when, when is it that the grass fades uh, and the, the grass withers and the flowers fade? Well, it's whenever God's spirit blows on it. It's whenever God's breath blows on it. A flower stands no chance against a powerful gust of wind. It, the, the wind blows and casts the, the flower onto the ground. Just as the wind blows the grass and the flowers wherever it wills, so too does God control our lives however he wills. Mankind is temporal. We're transient. But God has always existed, and he will always exist. He is eternal. In God's sovereign timing, he determines when we live and flourish like the lush grass in the middle of the summer or the, the beautiful pansies in the fall. And then he decides when we will also wither and fade and pass from this earth. He is sovereignly working out his will for his glory. Think back to the context of these words of comfort. Israel is an exile. This would be super encouraging to be reminded that no matter how powerful another nation might be, that God is still much more powerful. And we see this reality whenever God uses Cyrus to decree that the Israelites can come back home. God sovereignly working in the hearts and the minds of kings to accomplish his will for his glory. Further, it would have been a great comfort to the Israelites knowing that when God promises something, that it will come to fruition. He is 100% faithful to his word 100% of the time. This would have been deeply encouraging to the Israelites in this season of life of exile. There's lots of implications we could draw out from these verses, but I want to draw out three very quickly. First of all, this verse, this, this, these verses support the doctrine of the inerrancy of the Word of God. The Word of God is, is His very breath. He used men, the Holy Spirit used men to to write down his very words that he wanted, them, wanted uh, there to be in the scriptures so that we would have them to reveal who he is to us and his plan of redemption. So the, the very book that we ha- hold in our hands is the word of God, and we can trust 100% of what we see in the scriptures. Secondly, no human force can thwart God's plan. Mankind has limited power limited knowledge, limited resources, limited time. We are temporal beings. We may, may have 60 to 80 years on this earth. But God is all-powerful. He has all knowledge, abundant resources, and he is outside of time. He is eternal. He is eternal, and he will accomplish his plans for his glory. And nothing that sinful man can do, can thwart, can stop his sovereign plans. Three, third implication, 
God's church is not dependent on specific individuals. It's not. People come and go. Teaching pastors come and go. Lay elders come and go. Ministry leaders come and go. Members come and go. We're fleeting. We're temporal. But God's word is eternal. And as long as the church is seeking to come up under the authority of God's word, then God will bless his church according to his sovereign purposes and plans. If the mission was dependent on certain individuals, then this would have died out centuries ago. It would have died out. If it was dependent on certain individuals to carry on the mission of God, the church would have died out early on. But it is not dependent on individuals. It's dependent on our sovereign God building his church. He does, by his grace, use people to do that, but it is absolutely not dependent on any one or group of individuals for a church to flourish. It is simply God's sovereign plan. It's up to him. He's the one that is eternal and all-powerful. Our last point this morning comes from verses 9 through 11. Let's read those verses. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd, and he will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. So the third point here is to, uh, to bring comfort to others by heralding the good news. Bring comfort to others by heralding the good news. God has returned to his people, and he, he now tells Zion, his people, Jerusalem, to climb up to the highest place and to proclaim this glorious news. So tell Tell the world, tell all of Israel's inhabitants of this amazing news of what God has done. It's, it's kind of similar to the idea of shouting something from the rooftop, right? You're getting to the highest place possible, and then you're shouting this amazing news, whatever it might be, so that as many people as possible can hear. And so that's the idea here, that, that we want to share this most incredible news of all time with any and all that would hear, as many people as possible. And in verse 10, uh, we see that the Lord has come with his might as a conquering king, and he now has his reward. He has his bounty, which is his people, whom he has redeemed for his glory. We are his reward that he has, has received from this. So the, the, Lord, the Lord has delivered his people and then he graciously brings his sheep back into his fold to care for us, to tend us, to, to, uh, to bring us close to his bosom, close to his heart, to carry us, to comfort us, to lead us. He is our mighty and powerful king, but he is also our tender shepherd who cares intimately for us. Our salvation through faith and the gospel 
is not only good news for us personally and as a church, as members of the body of Christ, but it is good news for people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. And so as we enjoy this Christmas season by celebrating the fact that God took on flesh to rescue us, may we keep in mind our family members and friends whom we will encounter during this season who have not trusted in Christ to rescue them, to pay for their iniquity. May we joyfully proclaim the hope that we have in Christ. May we joyfully proclaim this this wonderful Christmas message so that they would see where true hope is found and where their sins can be paid for. Jesus was born in a manger, but he grew and he eventually went to that tree, went to the cross to bear the sins of the world for anybody who would trust in him. And so may we hold out that hope to those around us. May we seek to be faithful, to look for opportunities and to pray for opportunities to reach our family members and friends with the most comforting news of all time. Who are the people in your life who need to hear these words of comfort? That their iniquity has been paid for by the Son of God who took on flesh. Who needs to hear that? And I would just encourage you to make plans to make that happen at some point during this Advent season. Brothers and sisters, we are exiles in our world today. Not exactly in the same way as the Israelites were in Babylonian exile, but this world is not our ultimate home. We are first and foremost citizens of heaven. And we face trials of various kinds as we walk through this dark and fallen world. Some of our hardships may occur due to our sinful rebellion against God and, and, and similar to the punishment that the Israelites reserved, uh, received because of their disobedience to God and they were cast into exile. So, some of our hardship may come from that, and the Lord is graciously disciplining us. But many of our hardships come from the fact that we just live in a fallen, broken world. We're confronted with difficulties day in and day out. We're confronted with the difficulties of, of raising kids, all the challenges that come with that. As we grow older, our mental and physical capacities decline. Perhaps uh, you are someone who is taking care of somebody who is older, who is declining mentally and physically, and you're bearing the weight of that day in and day out and constantly worrying about your, your loved one. So you bear that weight, that, that trial. We may walk through seasons of not knowing where the finances are going to come from to meet our basic needs. We battle through discouragement on a regular basis and seasons of depression. We face uncertainty as we await medical test results. We experience the reality of thorns and thistles in our workplace and in school. We endure through seasons of sickness within our homes, and we unfortunately go through the process of grieving the death of loved ones within our families and and our friends. And we constantly 
day after day, battle against the flaming arrows that are coming from the evil one, seeking to deceive us, seeking to lead us astray, away from our God. We face that pressure, that, that, that weight day in and day out, and it can be overwhelming and it can be exhausting. And so where do you find comfort in the midst of the smallest trials of life to the most paralyzing trials of life. Perhaps you go to food, retail therapy, veg out on shows or movies, or maybe it's nature, maybe it's other people, your family member or a friend, church member. While all those things are not necessarily altogether bad, they are temporal, and they can't provide ultimate comfort. True and lasting comfort comes from our God who has delivered us from sin and death and who is present with us. He's with us. He's near. Even in the darkest valleys of our lives, He is with you. He came to us in a dark world to be the light. He removed every obstacle to come to deliver you and I. And he is the everlasting God, and his word stands forever. Our comfort, peace, and hope comes from our sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing, and faithful God. Just as Isaiah offered comfort to God's people with the hope of the promises of God, so too are we to encourage and admonish and remind one another, build one another up with the promises that are found in God's Word. We are the means by which God uses to remind one another of the truth of God's Word, to receive the words of comfort that we need. So church family, receive uh, God's comfort in this Christmas season and in every season of life. And may we continue to be faithful, to hold fast to the comfort of God and his everlasting word. To, may we hold that out to one another. May we hold, that, hold to that ourselves as we go through the various trials of life, from the smallest things to the most difficult things. God has come to us, and he has delivered us, and he remains present with us. God and his word are everlasting and faithful, so let us cling to these truths and herald this glorious news to others. Church, let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for entering into the world, taking on flesh with the sole mission of coming to pay for our sins, to deliver us from sin and death. You came into our dark world to be the light to become sin for us, to die so that we wouldn't have to die eternally, to be raised from the grave, defeating sin and death. Oh God, thank you. Thank you so much for loving us and remaining faithful to us despite our unfaithfulness to you. Lord, we pray for the 
people, our friends in this room who have not believed in the gospel this morning, who have not believed in the fact that you came to deliver them from sin and death through your work on the cross. Lord, help them to see that you are the one true God, the holy God who is worthy of uh, their worship. And may you give them faith to believe in the hope of the gospel. May you lead them to turn from their sin and to trust in you. God, would you do that right now in this moment? Would you lead them to talk with a friend or family member to, to talk about the fact that they are wanting to follow you and put their hope in you? Would you lead them to do that today? Lord, we praise you for your, the fact that you are everlasting and that your word stands forever. And Lord, we acknowledge that we are temporal beings. We are fleeting and you are eternal. So may we continually cling to the promises that we see in your word, knowing that you are 100% faithful to your word 100% of the time. So Lord, may we cling to the comfort of your word. And Lord, may we, your people, encourage and build one another up with the promises of your word. May we be reminded that our ultimate need is you, and we need to comfort one another with the truth of your word and to be present in one another's lives, to encourage us to persevere in the midst of trials that we face day in and day out. Lord, we pray that you would compel us, your people, whom you've died for and brought into your fold, to be faithful and compelled to go out with this great news of great joy, this comfort, this true comfort. We pray, God, that you would compel us to go out with it, to display it to others, to declare it to others, and we pray that you would use your church mightily to bring more and more people into your sheepfold for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.